want to go ahead and read the thing? Yeah. It must have been terrifying. It began with a humongous roar, causing all who heard it to look upwards and see the sky catch fire. A blazing streak, which would make night look like midday, and then... Silence. A rumble next as a wave of energy spread outwards. Those in the impact area would have been killed instantly, liquefied in the sheer mass of the explosion, as stone and metal melted in the heat. Those who survived the 10-kilometer-in-diameter asteroid's immediate effect would face starvation as the sky was blanketed for years with a sunlight-denying dust cloud killing the chlorophyll-reliant plant life and everything that fed on them all the way up the food chain. Over the coming years, 75% of the species on Earth would become extinct. We cannot know if the animals felt fear, but we can be sure with some certainty that as their planet irrevocably changed, their ecosystem vanished, and their species died one by one, none of them were too worried about the economy. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the Cretaceous Paleogene Extinction Event. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and nonsense we get distracted with. All nonsense. All, all nonsense. nonsense all the time. I'm Greg, uh, Iridium Analyst for Relative Disasters Industries. And I'm his sister, Ella, Chief Operating Officer for the Mosasaur Branch of the Relative Disasters Marine Reptiles Preservation Society. It's a very, very simple niche, but it needs to I actually be. have an extra long business card. Oh, I'll give excellent. you one next time excellent. I see you. Sweet. Uh, okay, so to get started, most of our primary sources for this episode are a lot of scientific papers, um, including the research and discoveries of Luis Alvarez, uh, Peter Schultz paper on the KPG mass extinction, and Lucas Joel's piece on the acidification of the oceans. Also, we're going to be talking about death on a scale that's fairly incomprehensible, mm. wiping out the vast majority of life on Earth. Yeah, my, my head um, hurts when I think about that. Yeah. Uh, we're also talking about time on a scale that we don't usually talk about, as events happened around 66 million years ago. Mm. And... Since none of the dinosaurs had the good graces to write down what was happening, their personalized experience. Yeah, where was the contemporary that's, press? That's the problem. We have no, we have no on-source citations for this. Eyewitness Every, accounts? None. None. Diaries? No. Business papers? Nothing. Scratchings okay. and rocks? Nothing. Uh, <laughs> so we're left. We have the fossil record, and that's and it. And that's it. So we're left to reconstruct all this stuff uh, from the fossil record. Uh, cool. Their personalized experiences have been lost to time. Anyway. Well, okay. So the Mesozoic era of life on Earth, little background here. Uh, <laughs> We're just jumping right in, aren't <laughs> we? Jumping right to the Mesozoic. <laughs> uh, it was dominated by very large reptiles. and Oh, I've heard about this. Dinosaurs. Yes. Well, yes. some were okay. dinosaurs. Some were 
uh, aerial reptiles and some were marine reptiles. So we. Have I'm to be, sorry. We have Those to be are not all clear. dinosaurs. Those no. don't. There's not like a dinosaur umbrella. And there's all of them fall into there's that. There's a paleontologist giving us both a side eye right now. Um, <laughs> oh no. It, there is a distinction. Uh, where, okay. Where flying reptiles need to be kept as flying reptiles and mm-hmm. marine reptiles need to be kept as marine reptiles. Dinosaurs were the ones walking around on land. So, for example, a T-Rex is a dinosaur, a pterodon is not, and a mosasaur is not. So I just want to let you know, I know a number of first graders who are going to argue with you on that. but And they'd be completely right. I like putting all of them under the dinosaur <laughs> umbrella, but if we're going to get all weirdly scientific... Might as well. I know, I know. It's, All right, let's do it. It's not the hill I want to uh, expire on, but, you know. It's not the umbrella you want to expire under. It's true. Um, so you had the very large reptiles, and in the mm-hmm. plant kingdom, everything was basically dominated by conifers. Interesting. Um, now, this era of life on Earth, the Mesozoic, started after the largest mass extinction in Earth's history, the Permian-Triassic extinction event. Okay, so this is not so the event that we're talking about is not This is this is just number two. Uh, <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Permian the Permian Triassic extinction event wiped out close to ninety percent of life on Earth. Okay. All right. Well that's hard to get your head around. Uh, isn't yeah, it? yeah. Uh however, after that, over the next hundred and eighty six million years. Uh, Mm -hmm. Life would rebound magnificently during the Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous periods. Yay! Dinosaurs walked the land, giant marine reptiles owned the seas, and flying (laughs) reptiles ruled the skies. You're really committed to this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've gotten some paleontologist side-eye before. I'm not not here to repeat that. We don't want that. Yeah. So, during the Cretaceous period, Earth was a pretty interesting place to hang out. This is when some of the most well-known dinosaurs were around, like uh, Tyrannosaurus rex, Ankylosaurus, Triceratops, uh, Mosasaurs, maybe the most terrifying thing ever to swim in the ocean, were predating on anything that they wanted. Um, Birds began to evolve, which is kind of neat. And... Mammals were relegated to being very low on the food chain. Uh, Just like a little furry snack for everyone else? pretty much. Uh, And insects were prevalent and way too big for comfort. Um, (laughs) I don't like that. No. (laughs) The supercontinent of Pangaea fully separated into the continents we'd recognize today, although not Mm -hmm. in their same locations. Um, the climate was pleasantly warm and earth Ooh. was a paradise for large cold-blooded creatures. Sure. And one of the most interesting things about this period was that the temperature was almost uniformly warm. Um, like around the globe? Yeah, pretty much. No way. Where, That's amazing. Yeah, the seas uh, were much warmer and mm-hmm. less, uh, less salty, less acidic, I guess would be the mm-hmm. way to put it. Um, the pH balance was different <laughs> it sounds so relaxing it, it's warm, it's like slightly a, warmer it's planet. like a tropical yeah. island planet and it's covered in conifers and exactly and and things that will terrestrial you yes <laughs> terrestrial reptile yep also known as dinosaurs i'm not sure if you're familiar with that term 
No, please explain to me again. <laughs> well, you see, Just it kidding. means Just Thunder kidding. Lizard. <laughs> anyway. Um, anyway. So what we had here was basically trop- Tropical Paradise, the planet, right? Like, this mm. is this is a a nice vacation spot for just about everybody, as long as you don't mind the, uh, the very large life forms and insects and which I would mind. I mean, I, well, if we're mammals, we're just going to get eaten. I would mind that. Yes. I would mind that as well. That's okay. That's not fun for anybody really getting eaten. Meanwhile, uh, lurking out <laughs> in space. <laughs> Meanwhile, back on the ranch. So, uh, the asteroid that would create the Chicxulub crater mm-hmm. headed for a collision course with Earth. Now, we're not, we still have not really nailed down where this asteroid came from. There was a theory that it was part of a larger group of asteroids that had broken up, uh, but that theory was pretty much disproved over the last 20 or so years. Um, because the the formation of that particular asteroid group happened significantly, like, it, it was too soon to this one hitting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we don't know why this particular bullet had Earth's name on it, but it did. Um, and no idea where it came from. Well, it came from outer space. That's Oh, outer yep. space. Oh, yep. thank you. We've, I really wasn't clear. Oh, my God, Greg. We've narrowed it down. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> now this this asteroid was estimated to be uh around 10 to 15 kilometers in diameter no that's too big it's way too big this is right. an extinction level event so and is this a rock asteroid or is it ice and rock well or? i'm glad you asked uh just trying to help you segue here <laughs> this is a uh this is an asteroid that is primarily composed of uh, rock, not so much, uh-huh. not so much uh, ice or anything. But one of its primary compositions is the element iridium. Now, mm. iridium is very, very uncommon on Earth because it's a very heavy metal, mm-hmm. and that tended to get when Earth was spinning around itself, forming itself. The really heavy stuff got pulled down to form the core of the planet. So we don't have iridium being ejected up into the planet like we have stuff like iron and even heavy things like uranium. We have there is iridium in the 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 crust of the planet, but not Mm -hmm. a ton of it. Meanwhile, out in space, there are asteroids that are made of a lot of it. Okay, Hmm. and one of the reasons why we know how and when this event happened is because it left a thin layer of iridium all Ah. over the planet that you can actually see if you look at rock formations that go through this time period. Mm -hmm. If you look at it with, you know, a geologist who knows what they're talking about, they can point to it and say, this is when the extinction event happened, because there's the line. It's really cool. You can, you can see pictures of them, dear listeners. They're out there. Um, it's it's really, is it really shiny? cool to see. What does it look like? Yeah, it's Iridium. like it, it looks like a, a layer of silver between cool. two layers of rock. Um, okay. So, uh, this 10 to 15 kilometer asteroid. Again, too big. Way too big. 
struck the shallow seas next to the Yucatan Peninsula in southeastern Mexico. When it hit there, it was moving at about 20 kilometers per second. Oh, too big and too fast. Way too big, way too fast. Um, Now, it did hit the water and not the land, but that, as we're about to find out, only created more problems. It would have been awful either way, but we get awful option B instead of awful option A. Uh, The kinetic energy released by this impact would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 teratons of TNT. Wow. To put that in in some form of understandable perspective, Mm -hmm. that is four and a half billion with a B times the force of the Hiroshima atomic bomb. I'm trying to imagine yeah. the size of the cloud, and I can't. Oh, we'll get into the size of the cloud, because that's important. Mm. Uh, winds at the impact site would have been over a 1,000 kilometers per hour. Wow. So, basically, when this hit, it mm-hmm. hit hard enough and fast enough, and with enough released impact energy, to melt stone... And essentially dissolve um, water and anything alive in its radius. So is this something you would have heard around the planet? Yes. Yes. Is this something that would have like changed the 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 orbit of the planet? So I mean, this sounds like a massive impact. It is. Um, I'm just trying to get my head around how like what the effects were. So there's there's some. The problem is that because we lack the the tools to go back and really watch this thing happen. Um, so far. So far. <laughs> it, it's doubtful that even something that big would have changed our orbit. Or if it did, mm-hmm. it would have changed it very, very, very slightly. Okay. However, uh, the impact basically would have been felt worldwide. Um, wow. So keep in mind that the continents were a little bit closer together as well. So Mm -hmm. that, you know, worldwide was a little bit smaller, but still, yeah. The impact and the seismic activity caused by the impact uh, created mega tsunamis. Mm. Now, some of these were over 100 kilometers tall. I feel like our scale is really off here. Everything right? seems Everything too big, too, too powerful. Big. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Like as an as an earthling, it's hard for me to get my little monkey brain around this. So I was trying to think of this and it was sort mm-hmm. of like if you took a paving stone mm-hmm. and dropped it into a full bathtub. Okay, I'm with you. The waves that that would create would absolutely come flying up out of the bathtub. You want to drop this right? from like ceiling height, by the way. Okay. Um, you might even crack the bottom of the bathtub, but it's that sort of <laughs> not cool, massive, okay, massive shockwave. Um, <laughs> in fact, speaking of the shockwave, um, the shockwave from the impact moved sediment and dirt material all the way in what is now Louisiana, Texas, and Florida. So the earth under those places got moved mm-hmm. by this thing hitting just off the Yucatan Peninsula. Wow. Okay. Okay. 
Uh, the next thing that happened was mm-hmm. a mushroom cloud of superheated dust, ash, and steam shot up into the sky. Yep. 25 million metric tons of rock, dirt, and other material which shot up into the atmosphere with enough power to eject some of it into space. Wrap your head around that one. (laughs) Where it became asteroids that went on to attack other planets. Yes, the vengeance shall be ours. Um, Asteroid 2, the revenge. It did spread out through the solar system. Um, Obviously, we can't track something like, you know, a a couple of grains of sand. But we know that they're moving through the solar system. Um, So there's like a chunk of rock that was in Canada at one point, and now it's floating there's a chunk of rock that was in Mexico at one system. point, and it's and it's and it's just sort of floating around. Yeah, that blows my mind. And has okay. been for the last sixty six million years. Sure. Um, now the material that fell back down, and keep mm-hmm. in mind that this is rock we're talking about here. Very heavy. Uh, was superheated enough to ignite mm-hmm. worldwide fires. Oh, boy. Okay. Burning an estimated 70% of the forests on the planet. Oh, geez. Okay. Oh, yeah. Conifers are super flammable. Uh Uh-huh. And basically every living organism from modern Mexico through the modern United States were killed almost instantly. That's it. Okay. Oh, yeah. Everybody else got the slow death. (laughs) But there's oh, a very clear either, yeah. there's a very clear break in the fossil record where mm-hmm. all of a sudden all the fossils go away for a while. Sure. Because they all died. <laughs> there was one year that was really good for fossils, and then after that <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Uh so to put the cherry on top of the awful Sunday, uh yes. the asteroid hit in relatively shallow water. Uh the mm. water there is only about twenty or so kilometers deep. Mm-hmm. So when it hit, it instantly vaporized the rock that it struck. Now, okay. a large portion of that rock was gypsum, which mm-hmm. is especially sulfur-ish. Okay? So this led this to a massive cloud of billions of tons of sulfur getting spewed up into the atmosphere and forming a lower layer in the atmosphere that lasted nearly a decade. And sulfur is not. Can you remind me? Uh, it, toxic. Well, not not that's not actually the biggest problem. Okay. The biggest problem is that it's it prevented sunlight and solar energy from getting to the surface of the planet. Sure. Okay. Oh, and it would be all yellow too for a decade. A giant yellow cloud that lasted for ten years, at least, uh, and Aww. and prevented sunlight from getting down. Massive amounts of carbon dioxide were also released by the impact uh, because it disintegrated carbonate rocks, which Mm -hmm. lowers the oxygen level of the planet and assists the rapid cooling through a sudden trapped greenhouse effect. Basically, sunlight could not get through the clouds. And until those clouds of material slowly came back to Earth, Mm-hmm. Most of the plant life on the planet died because they couldn't photosynthesize. Now, God, this just is is oh, it's it's like on every level, it's absolutely. so much worse than I imagined. It, it, it's insane. Um, now, without plants to eat, everything starved. 
So Mm -hmm. it was a fimble winter that most species would never emerge from. Mm. So let's talk about the ocean for a second. Oh, yeah, because they were safe, right? They were underwater. They were underwater, sure. Um, My mosasaur was cruising around down there. (laughs) Mosasaurs were definitely cruising around. (laughs) Um, However, the phytoplankton couldn't uh, photosynthesize. The death of the phytoplankton leads to extinctions all the way up the food chain, with Mm. a few noted exceptions. Uh, Sea turtles, Mm -hmm. members of the crocodilian family, and many sharks. Well, that kind of makes me happy. And and I want to take a brief sidebar here on sharks. Uh, because sharks yeah. have lived through like five planetary extinction events and they just keep on sharking, man. They're just sharks are like the, the you know, it, it, oh, was that another extinction event? Wipe the dust off your shoulder. <laughs> keep going. The, the closest sharks have ever come to extinction is in the last, like, 70 to 100 years. This, yes, we did an episode on it. Yes, we did. Uh, but this massive worldwide murder-everything extinction event, and sharks were like, huh, there's a little less to eat. <laughs> Which is a problem for all of us. It's true. It's true. Uh, and it did lead to the big extinctions of, of, you know, very large sharks, of course. But, you know. Um, uh, well... As we know from the Jason Statham documentary, <laughs> The Meg, a few of them are still out there, Greg. I wish you'd stay current on this stuff. I, I really, I'm, I'm not keeping up with the latest papers <laughs> published by uh, Fast and Furious University. It's not a paper. It's a documentary. It's very well done. It's very, very well, watchable. Very well researched. I enjoyed it. Um, so in the air, basically with mm-hmm. this new couple of layers of atmosphere that had just been introduced... Uh-huh. Everything gets wiped out. Yeah. Basically, some of the species of birds, which are very mm-hmm. new at this time, survive. Um, but how? I, There's nothing for them to eat. They can't fly. They can fly. Yeah, I mean they can fly, but they the can air fly, is but they shouldn't fly. Yeah, no. Disgusting. Okay. Well, it's the same way I guess that some birds survive through winters. You just forage for what you can find. Um, you know, just because the plant life all died doesn't mean it went away immediately. So, hmm. I don't know. Okay. They, they made okay. it through somehow. Uh, Birds, tougher than you think. Exactly. Uh, and, of course, the large terrestrial animals slowly starved and suffocated to death. There mm-hmm. simply wasn't time to evolve survival traits against this kind of natural selection. Basically, if you didn't already have the traits that would allow you to survive in this environment... Mm-hmm. Uh, you weren't going to survive the environment. Poor dinosaurs. Poor dinosaurs. Uh, so with the dominant groups all but destroyed, well, nature abhors a vacuum, as they say. And, That's true. And with the dawning of the Paleogene period of the Cenozoic area, the era we call home, by the way, uh-huh. mammals arose to fill many of the niches left behind by their previous reptilian inhabitants. Because uh, nice. you know what's great to protect yourself from a decade-long winter? Fur. Being able to eat a lot of different things and having warm blood and hair. Yep. <laughs> I think it's mostly the fur, though, right? Fur really helps. <laughs> um, fur and a balanced diet. <laughs> yep. Uh, in the oceans, sea, sea snakes began to show up uh, and thrive okay. and do quite well. And, of course, the sharks did fine. Uh, did the phytoplankton come back? They did. Like, they started to reemerge. Soon? Yep. 
Okay. Uh, fish began to proliferate. And in the insect kingdom, ants began to take on incredibly wide species diversity that they continue to this day. Yeah, don't don't really approve of that. Well. The rest of it sounds pretty good. Uh, on land, ferns were the first of the plant life to make a big comeback. Mm. And eventually things settled down into the familiar niches we see today. Apex predators rose again and uh, food webs reestablished themselves. Is this, sorry, you mentioned before that most of the plant life was coniferous. Is yep. this the point where plants really start to diversify and develop different kinds of... Yeah, this is, this, is when, this is when the deciduous plants really started to come into their own. And obviously we still have coniferous plants now, Oh so yeah, I understand that. Completely wiped out, but it's still it's like it's not like the planet yeah. changed from pine trees to ferns, and that was a yeah, exactly. Okay, <laughs> really gotcha. big ferns, um, <laughs> and and that's actually uh, on an evolutionary level. That's one of the really cool things, uh, dear listeners. If you ever want to look into the main differences between deciduous trees and coniferous trees, there's a lot more to it than just one has leaves and one doesn't. So. Oh, one has pine cones and one doesn't, Greg. You know, that's fair. I was being a little I was being a little leaf centric there. I need to do a better <laughs> job. I can see your I can see your narrow lens yep. there and yep. uh, I, I just want to call you out on it before it becomes a problem. I showed my privilege. Uh, <laughs> you showed your <laughs> You showed your leaf privilege. I my leaf privilege, yep. Mm. Uh, mammals began to develop more complex brain structures in the Eocene period and began to diversify a lot more. This is where now. What's the yeah. reason for that? What's the what's the mechanism that's driving that? Do you know? Is it something that I mean, mm -hmm. mammals are everything from dolphins to you know mice to human beings. So right, we we have as far as the umbrella of mammal goes, there is a lot of diversification there, and. Right. With that comes a lot of adaptive traits. And so for some reason, one of the adaptive traits that people really enjoyed surviving with was a brain that could remember more and recognize patterns better and be more complex. Sure. Um, so, yeah, by the time the Eocene rolls around, uh, you've got um, brain structures that are getting more and more complex. And eventually... An offshoot of primates would develop enough technology to lead to the podcast you're listening to now. So, what? It goes all the way back. Okay. So thanks, Cretaceous Paleogene <laughs> Extinction Event. Thanks, Asteroid. <laughs> Couldn't um, have done it without ya. Well, That's really interesting. So, yeah, there you have it. Uh, planet Earth got punched in the neck by an asteroid, shook up the Etch-A-Sketch, and left just enough left over for us to come into the picture. So that's kind of neat. Uh, so those of you out there who have those pictures of cavemen riding dinosaurs around, uh, just oh. remember your social distancing. They were, you know, several hundred million years apart. <laughs> now you're going to judge my art collection? <laughs> I'll have you know those are painted on velvet and they are heirlooms, okay? So one of the one of the most interesting things about doing the research for this is mm -hmm. it's really hard to nail down how quickly species came back. Um, yeah. Some scientists are like, basically as soon as 
the you know the the nuclear winter fimble winter whatever you want to call it uh had died down planet earth started to rebound within like 10 million years which oh wait did the nuclear winter last for that long no, it would have been like a, a decade long thing of no sunlight hitting the planet. So it would have taken a okay. very, very long time for things to really recover. Right. Um, and other scientists put it at like, no, it took like several hundred million years for things to get back to relatively normal. So mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to nail down a lot of the specifics about this particular disaster uh, mm -hmm. And in fact, a lot of the research on this has been much more recent than I thought it was. Oh, interesting. I want to talk for a moment. I want to talk about the people who actually figured out what was going on in the Chicxulub crater. I know yeah, I'm pronouncing thanks. that badly, but I, it's the best I can do. I'm sorry. Um, so we need to talk about Luis Walter Alvarez. So okay. Luis Walter Alvarez uh, was born in 1911 in San Francisco, California. He was a very, very cool guy. He won a Nobel Prize in physics. Mm. Um, and he's uh, he's an interesting guy. He is the he was tangentially like all people at this time uh, was involved in the Manhattan Project. <laughs> sure. Because everybody the smart was. People go. Yep. OK. Now, in 1980, uh, he and his son, Walter Alvarez, who was a mm -hmm. geologist, um, basically figured out what's called the KT boundary, which stands for a Cretaceous tertiary. Doesn't Cretaceous start with a C? It does. But when you're okay. abbreviating, uh, I guess you do it with a K. Uh, for example, if you refer to it as the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction event, it's called K. Uh -huh the KPG extinction. And if you refer to it as the Cretaceous tertiary, it's called the KT extinction. Same thing, okay. but whatever. Sounds a little gatekeepy. That's... No one's going to know what you're talking about. If you start spelling Cretaceous <laughs> with a K, you got to say it really snobby too. <laughs> oh, well, I'm it's actually pronounced K Cretaceous. <laughs> so his son, Walter, uh, mm -hmm. in the 1970s was doing geological research in central Italy. And he, basically found a rock layer where limestone had collected both above and below a thin layer of clay. Um, mm, that spooky. thin layer of clay is where the dinosaurs became extinct and nobody knew why. So hmm. Alvarez, the elder Luis Alvarez, uh, he hauled in a bunch of his friends from the Lawrence Berkeley nuclear chemistry laboratory uh, and they ran some neutron activation analysis and published a paper basically stating that the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction had to have been caused by an asteroid and the entire scientific community was like no we know it was caused by a bunch of uh, these massive er volcanic eruptions called the Deccan traps okay mm -hmm. now oh, that's spooky Right. Uh, which did happen at around the same time, but they happened significantly uh, previously. And mm -hmm. and um, even with all of them erupting at once, it wouldn't have put enough ash into the air to have caused the thimble winter. Now, okay. what Alvarez found in the clay was shocked quartz 
microscopic diamonds, um, minerals that are only formed under the conditions of temperature and pressure, mm-hmm. and metallic glass is basically the best way to, to point it out. And, Sounds glittery. Uh, oh, it's super cute. Uh, it was definitely the look for the year of 66 yeah, yeah. million. Um, and iridium. So mm. a huge scientific debate pops up. Mm-hmm. And uh, 10 years later, they discover the impact crater named Chicxulub off the coast so, of Mexico. Now, okay. now, in this crater... I just want to clarify, this is underwater, right? Oh, yes. This is at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. But it is massive. It's so massive, you don't know what you're looking at. Yeah. It looks okay. like it looks like an in, a natural indentation, I guess. Mm-hmm. Before the Alvarezes had published their paper, uh, mm-hmm. there were two geophysicists named Glenn Penfield and Antonio Camargo working for uh, Petróleos Mexicanos, also known as Pemex, which is mm-hmm. the Mexican state oil state owned oil company. Okay, mm-hmm. and they were out there to use geophysical data to scout for oil drilling sites. Right. And Penfield found this 180 kilometer in diameter impact crater. It had that to be an been a surprise. Crater, right. It had to be right. an impact crater. <laughs> there was no other thing that this could be. It's sort of like, you know, if you you look at a scar on somebody's face, mm-hmm. you can kind of see what may have caused the scar this is that sort of thing. So he prevent he he presents his findings to Pemex, and Pemex basically says, uh, "Don't publish this." So why? It's because, underwater because <laughs> no one's going to come out and look at. Well, they don't. They don't want it. They don't want it published. Um, okay. And so. Penfield has a lot of geophysical data, but he doesn't mm-hmm. have any cores. He can't like drill down in there and and get access to the material under there. Mm-hmm. And Penfield saw the uh, the paper that uh, Alvarez published in the nineteen in nineteen eighty. Mm-hmm. He wrote to them. They never responded. They may have never even received the letter. However, mm-hmm. in nineteen ninety. Penfield was able to get some drill samples from Pemex wells that had been drilled in that area and mm-hmm. found shock metamorphic materials, the stuff that only gets formed under those conditions. The glitter. The glitter. Exactly. Cool, cool. And so this is it. They know mm-hmm. that it's it. They know that this is the impact crater. And based on what uh, the Alvarez's had discovered, this is the impact crater where the asteroid hit and wiped out life on the planet. Uh, Mm -hmm. Penfield insisted on, uh, when they published their paper, uh, he insisted on naming the crater for the nearby town of Chicxulub Mm. because part of the motivation was to give uh, the people who disagreed with him uh, a hard time pronouncing it. (laughs) I mean. After years of telling him that it didn't even exist. So... I I love this guy. You're hurting us too, though, Alvarez. We're on your side. Nope. Nope. No, this isn't <laughs> no. Alvarez. This is Penfield. 
Penfield, sorry. And I'm I'm with him on this. I, I would okay. rather have difficulty pronouncing this than whatever. Anyway, so in 2010, over 20 years of data spanning a variety of fields finally led to the conclusion that mm-hmm. this is the impact crater. All right. And the impact glass contains isotopes mm-hmm. from ash within the KPG boundary meaning that they basically had to have come from that impact. Interesting. So it's really, really cool stuff. It also gets very scientific, um, Mm -hmm. but it is, uh, it's a very cool uh, way of discovering what, you know, what we think happened. You know, this is the thing. We can only piece it together from the evidence left over. and, Mm. And when the evidence is this hard to use... Uh, it's just really neat to to see very smart people making good use of it. Anyway. That's really cool. So that's it. That's the story of the Cretaceous Paleogene Extinction Event. I'm going to give that one a 1 out of 10 because I feel like the death toll was really high. Yeah. Yes. Even though it was... Definitely the highest death toll we've ever Technically done a sequel. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a lot of... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, abrupt change and we're talking about and we're talking about stuff on a scale that we just don't usually talk about on the show so i kind of i kind of love it yeah that's we usually do one volcano (laughs) this is all (laughs) volcano volcano. (laughs) is a long story this is this is something else all right i mean aerosolized gypsum that's that's just you can't like you can't imagine it you're like how does rock become gas (laughs) what did you do people anyway it's wrong okay cool all right although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible if you'd like to read more about our sources a complete bibliography is available in our show notes if we got anything wrong please let us know you can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com or if you'd like to shame us publicly, and you do, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters? Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? Well, Greg, we've done a stupid riot. Yes. We've done a riot where a lot of people got hurt. Yes. I thought we should do a riot that had a lasting positive impact on American life. Okay. <laughs> I'm with you. So next week to celebrate Pride Month, um, on the suggestion of our dear listener, Wally, who wrote in. Thank you, Wally. Thank you, Wally. Uh, we will be covering the Stonewall Riots. Aha, yes. It's time. It's time. Hey, why not? Cool. Sure. Cool, cool, cool. Well, that sounds amazing, and uh, I can't wait to talk about it with you.